Welcome to Radio by Jack Roberts. It is our mission to bring you inspired conversations with the world's inspired minds. We host wide-ranging discussions on business, entrepreneurship, health, wellness, mindset, and much more. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. Our guest today is Jordan Muthasami. Jordan is the co-founder of Slide and Nom Nom with a background in engineering uh, from Monash University. We had the privilege of discussing Slide and Nom Nom with Jordan's co-founder, Josh, on episode one of Radio. I'm excited to bring you the unique perspective of an identical business story, but with a different set of eyes. We hope that Jordan's insights bring you a fresh perspective into the mind of a young entrepreneur. Jordan, welcome to Radio. Thanks for having me, Jack. Excited to be here. Thank you. Um, we'll jump straight into these questions. Um, obviously, given sort of people that will have listened to the first episode with Josh, your co-founder, will have a little bit of um, a little bit of perspective of the journey you guys went on. Um, but take me take me sort of back to to your university days, and then finishing up and making that decision to jumping into obviously operating you know operating slide and now growing into into the nom nom business as well. Um, what were the biggest mental hurdles you had to overcome as you moved through that process? Well, I guess the one that sort of stands out is you really have to change your whole perspective on life and where you're going, um, what you're doing and, and who you want to become. I mean, you go, to, you go to school, you go to uni, and it's really following this path that's laid out for you um, where you can essentially kind of, to an extent, I mean, you can kind of coast through it and feel like you're getting somewhere. Um, obviously not for everyone, but... I mean, so I jumped into civil engineering straight out of uni and I mean, that was, it was something I had an interest in, but never really, never really any passion behind it. Um, so I, I finished my degree, but in the third year, I think it was, uh, Josh and I basically had the idea for slide and it kind of just snowballed from that third year of uni into making lots of little commitments to kind of get it to where it is now. I think it's very interesting. You obviously touched on the passion element. Um, basically, uh, I think that story is probably, um, you know, it's not something that's uncommon across people um, of our demographic sort of working through, jumping through the hoops as such. Um, and you end up at the end of uni and you're probably not super passionate about, um, I guess, what you've studied and, and what you're doing. How important do you think, um, passion is I guess in, in the journey like obviously you guys are very committed to slide and, and, and making that work um, but I guess that passion's now sort of led you off into nom nom and, and other things as well as it sort of expands would you say that's probably one of the biggest drivers with what you do day to day yeah 100% I mean my view on passion is you only I mean some people are lucky enough to just fall into their passion kind of from day one but for me and for a lot of other people, you kind of have to experiment and you have to be curious and you have to, you know, throw yourself into different things to actually figure out what that is. And so for me, the passion element of it is really, it's really building things. And I mean, in this case, it happens to be a business and building a, a tech company. And, you know, there's lots of goals associated with that. But when you boil it down, it, it comes down to that nature of wanting to build and wanting to create um, something that ultimately creates a lot of value. Mm, that's, it's very interesting to me because I felt, I've definitely felt the same way um, and probably not being, um, 
personally not being considered, I guess, creative by nature. Like I'm not an art student or I'm not a, when I say art, I mean sort of like fine art. Um, and I've never sort of really pursued that side of, of, I guess, the left side of my brain and creativity too much. Um, but yep. I guess a little bit later in life, probably 23, 24, um, I started to realise that I, you know, for me that business was actually that creative outlet and I really enjoyed um, there's something about creating and almost giving back, um, giving back to others through whether it's a business or, you know, in, in this instance, um, you know, a podcast or I, I guess a lot of social media influences in that sense as well. It's all about actually creating and, and giving back and putting something into the world rather than simply, I guess, taking from it. Um, so yeah. I find that I find it very interesting. It's probably the, the third or fourth time I've I've heard it on this on this podcast around people actually viewing their business as a creative outlet um, rather than just simply a I guess a, a boring old business like prospectively some of the um, some of the other civil engineering jobs you you would have looked at when you finished up. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a valid point. I mean the the creative side of business, I think it's it's inherently built in because there is no logical blueprint that's going to, you know, make every choice for you. Uh, you really have to think creatively, not just to solve problems, but to also come up with ideas uh, in the first place. And so, yeah, that's why I think it's just when you have those demanding challenges constantly, you have to be creative. Otherwise you're not going to, you're not going to get through them and overcome them. Yeah, absolutely. I, was speaking with someone um, on a uh, on a webinar last week, um, and they were talking about sort of the levels of creativity um, and sort of the, the highest level being that genius level where all of the ideas of creation are really coming from inside, and we're not um, we're not creating something that's I guess somewhat a mirror of another product or something else that's in the market, um, or obviously you know painting or drawing or something like that you're drawing something from scratch rather than copying a photo um and the lowest level of creativity sort of being um like an unconscious imitation kind of thing which i guess like if you're a barista making a cup of coffee when they pour the little love heart or their little picture in the top of it um it, it's creative in some senses but you know that they're only just copying you know they're copying something they've seen before um i guess business yeah. gives you that ability to get on that level where you're really creating things internally you're trying to come up with products that are not the same as what's in the market but rather um new different and or better yeah that's it i mean you have to you got to look at things from different angles you got to think about the way that different people are going to respond to your product or your service and that was kind of a big element throughout the whole slide journey uh, in the sense that you've got so many different types of people that like to go out and like to you know, listen to music, that like to drink, that like to go to clubs. And from one way of looking at it, you can kind of put everyone into sort of one bucket. You know, these people go out and they enjoy themselves and they're young. But when you dig in a bit deeper, there's a heap of different motivations there and your product's going to appeal in different ways ultimately. Mm. To, to touch a little bit on the slide journey, which stage of slide, um, you know, getting it up and running was the most daunting part for you? Well, so it's it's probably two main things. The the first one was the whole fundraising element of the business venture. So right from when Josh and I personally made that initial commitment and, and put 
our initial skin in the game, um, several thousand dollars each. From that step onwards, it was pretty daunting to go to people that we either knew or were, you know, second degree connections and ultimately you have to ask these people for money and not guarantee a return, not guarantee results in any particular time frame. But yeah, just that, that was a pretty daunting task, especially initially. How did you, I guess, how did you work through that? How did you overcome that? that hurdle because you're obviously successful in raising, um, you know, successful in raising more than enough capital to, to get the business up and running into where you are today. So obviously it didn't, I guess it, it wasn't something that held you back. Um, were there any sort of techniques or, or strategies that you used during that, um, during that sort of VC process? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it kind of came down to practice experience and then, kind of iterating the approach. We we had to see what was working, what didn't work. And and ultimately, it, it came down to talking to different people in different ways. I mean, not everyone wants to be sold the same way. We had to really look at who it was, how we knew them, ultimately what they, what they were investing in. I know that sounds a bit weird, a bit abstract, but some people just want to invest in you as the, as the founder, as the head of the business, and they believe in you and what you're doing. Other people are far more concerned about the financial projections of the business, for example, or the business model. So just experience in selling to different types of people and doing a lot more listening than just pitching as such, I'd say is how we overcame that. Tell me about your first ever pitch for Capital. How did it go? What did it feel like? Uh, what did you learn from it? So my first pitch was to a family friend. So not not a friend directly, but a family friend. We'd known them for a long time, let's say 10 plus years. Basically, they found out about what I was doing. And that kind of, I'd say it's a switch that goes off in people's heads when they hear you're leaving your current job to do this business. And when they heard that, they were immediately interested. They wanted to jump on a phone call. They wanted more information. And from sending more information to this person, we, we got on a call. And that was my first big pitch for capital, um, asking someone for their money and pitching the business that really it was – it was along the development process. Like we had a, a pretty good product there. We hadn't launched yet. Um, but still there was, there was no product. There was no revenue. And that was the, that was the first real pitch I had. And ultimately we got a sizable deal done out of, out of that. And that kind of gave me a lot more confidence to proceed and, and keep going and keep doing that with more people. I guess that's a hypothetical, you know, hypothetical question because it didn't happen. But how do you think, do you think there was a big difference um, that your first pitch was, was sort of successful? It gave you that boost to be able to really roll on into the next ones and sort of deal with, um, obviously there was pitches when you didn't secure funds, um, I guess. So working through that and, and dealing with, I guess, rejection and failure and all of those things. Um, do you think if it had gone differently in the first pitch, it might have maybe you, you might have looked at things differently or done some things differently? Yeah, it's a good question. There's definitely, 
I mean, if that if that first phone call had gone really bad, it might have changed the approach that I personally took. How you know how I would have spoken with Josh about leads that he's bringing in or talking to. Uh, it would have just affected the mindset. But I think ultimately, you know, because of the nature of how Josh and I work together, we would have we would have sort of tried a different strategy um, if that first sort of encounter had gone bad. Um, and I think we still would have gotten through it. It probably would have taken longer. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was really what got us through it. Our ability to do something, come back, talk about it, be like, okay, is there actually a problem here? Is there actually an objection here? Or is it just complaints? And, um, and move forward. And just to add to that, we, we didn't close all these deals in the same way. Some of them were more heavily email focused. Some were calls on the phone. Others were even in person. So, yeah, I mean, even if that phone call hadn't have gone perfect that first time, I think we still would have got to the end result. Take me through the difference. You just touched on something um, that I find really interesting. Take me through the difference between a genuine objection um, and a complaint. Yeah, a genuine objection, I'd say, is is something that ultimately honestly disqualifies them from from investing, from purchasing your product or, or working with you in, in one way. I think a complaint is is when it's just a first impression that isn't ideal in, in their mind, in the prospect's mind. Um, that's kind of the definition I attach to it. I think you can look at it in different ways, but the bottom line is that there is a clear difference between the two, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I guess to speak from my experience um, and to, to shed a little bit of light on it um, for people listening, um, there is a certain number of, I guess, false objections or complaints that any prospect will throw at you. Um, I guess it's more it's more a test of your ability to be able to navigate those situations than it is actually a um, – the human brain knows it's being sold um, and its natural defense yes. mechanisms are basically like, hang on, I don't want to get sold this quickly, so let's pull the handbrake on. We throw a couple of um, you know, fake objections, um, complaints out there, um, and obviously, well, I know I work through an objection handling strategy um, – around acknowledging, you know, acknowledging what's being said and then directing it a different direction or whichever way that I need to take it to overcome the objection. Um, whereas a, a true objection um, would be more, um, you know, I'm trying to, I really, I guess a bad fake objection is, oh, Jordan, I, I went on the, um, I went on the test app and I didn't like the colors that were on it. Right now, yeah. that's so easy to, to overcome. Like if, if I, if that's me on the phone, I'd just turn around. I'll be like, Oh, listen, Joe, you know, thanks for your feedback. It means a lot to me. Look, if you're in for, if you're in for a million bucks, I, I'm happy to change the color scheme for you. We'll sit you down with our web designers um, and we can get the product to look the way that you think it should look because we value your money and we also value your, your business experience on this journey it's overcome and 90% of the time you never even have to sit down and redesign the thing because it was a false objection. Whereas if someone comes in and, and says, well, actually I ran the numbers on, you know, on your business model and your revenue projections and they don't make sense. And then they, they take you through, you know, a 30 page analysis of, um, of their projections and you know, you can't 
I guess, come to an agreement on the numbers, I think that's more of a real objection and something you can't really, uh, you, you can't really overcome. Yeah, I mean, I think you've summed it up perfectly there. Uh, that's the exact kind of thing that we dealt with to an extent. There were little comments here and there that they might have been tests. They might have just been the the, the prospect or, or the potential investor just feeling like they're about to try and sell me now and, and I'm not sold yet. Ultimately, if if the investor's more sold on their money than they are on you and your business, it's never going to happen. And I think some of them use little objections, little complaints as, as ways to avoid uh, getting to that, the end of the sales process uh, at times. Yeah. They want to slow it down. Um, yeah, mm, exactly. No, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I didn't, didn't mean to cut you off. I just think that they, um, they, they actually want to be, the, the psychology would suggest that they want to be closed um, which I think is generally true. Um, they just don't like the pace at which the transaction's moving. Um, and a good way of a good way of objection handling can be um, going into building more rapport. So if we think about a transaction like a straight line, um, with the start of the line being the commencement of the transaction, the first meeting, the first phone call, the first email, um, and then the end of the straight line being the close. Obviously, the ideal um, the ideal <laughs> is we just move straight along the line from the first email to the close. Yep. There's no objections. Everything's great. Um, and you secure the capital or the sale or whatever it is. Um, now, obviously, you would be aware, Jordan, that that happens probably about uh, one out of a million times. Um, and the rest yep. of the time, people, even though they want, to, they want to invest and they want to be closed, will deliberately try and take you off your straight line um, just so they feel a little bit more safe and a little bit more comfortable before they, you know, before they get to the close. Um, I yep. think one of the key things, you know, both you and Josh identified how daunting the, the VC process was and raising capital was. Um, I guess, obviously, now listening to you speak about, I guess, the, the technical side of what you, what you did, I think, obviously, identifying the difference between real objections and fake objections also probably allowed you guys to keep your morale up and keep, keep moving forward rather than feeling like you're getting rejected all the time. Yeah, for sure. And that's where it definitely helps having, having two people doing this kind of process. It's, I mean, sales is, you can, you can take elements of it and it definitely overlaps across industries, but the nature of what we're doing where these are large sums of money and, and they're, you know, individuals and families uh, investing this amount of money it's it's something that takes at times months i think i think josh on on the first episode he he touched on one sale in particular that literally took us like 8 months or something of emails crafting copy crafting messages reflecting on the strategy like we we learned a lot from that process and ultimately we we got a deal done in the end um but yeah the the two co-founders definitely helped a lot throughout the whole process. What does a day in the office look like for you at Slide? So it, it really changes so much every day. It depends sort of what the main focus is, but I'd say that there's kind of three areas that over the past six months have been the primary focus. And that's been firstly the development, uh, working with the development team, 
talking about the product, product features, what we're going to build and when we're going to build it. Um, the second thing would be marketing and the whole strategy around that, how we're going to reach out to influencers, what we're doing with our ads, what we want to do with our ads, um, content, branding, all of that. And then the final one being venue relationships, reaching out to industry people, nightclub owners, hosts, promoters, um, building relationships and, and going to a lot of meetings. They're, they're kind of the three big areas. You touched a little bit on uh, marketing. Um, if you could sort of, if you could, I guess, give people one tip with, um, with working with influencer marketing, what would it be? The thing that's popped into my head first is, is just to fill up the pipeline. I think, I think some people put, put this big scary label on influencer marketing and they, and they place a lot of importance on it. Um, obviously it's important, which is why we're doing it, but you, you shouldn't go out of your way to just cater to influencers and, and cater to people purely because they have a following. I mean, for us, what we've done is we've gone really wide with our um, reach out approach. And ultimately, this not only puts us in a good position, but it allows us to really identify the people that actually want to work with us and work with us long term, as opposed to just give me some money for a post. It's a very interesting, uh, I guess, a very interesting point you touch on. How have you generally found, uh, how have you found negotiating with Influencers, it's obviously, you know, it's still an emerging market. And I think that pricing um, across with my limited interactions with, with the influencer space, um, I'm by no means an expert, but I'm aware that pricing can, um, you know, can vary a lot um, for people with very similar audiences and very similar reach. How have you found that sort of process working with, I guess, getting the economics of your marketing budget to work, um, but also getting people with, I guess, significant reach and, and the right target demographics? Yeah, so how we've kind of managed that is we've sort of made the offer consistent. So what I mean by that is our, our plan is essentially to bring influencers together, bring them in a in a group, in a community, and then essentially value arbitrage deals with different different nightclubs, different event groups and give the influencers the type of nights out, the types of um, bottle service, whatever, whatever the venue is willing to offer. We want to provide that to them uh, for free and ultimately give the venue the type of demographic that they want as well. So really trying to satisfy everyone and not make it a charge per post kind of thing, if that makes Interesting. sense. Interesting. I think it's um, obviously a, a smart and adaptive way to, um, I, I guess, to draw influences in, but also, you know, maintain economics of scale with your marketing budget. Um, how does that work um, scalability-wise as you move into Sydney and Brisbane and along the, um, along the eastern seaboard? Um, is that a is that a process that you're on the ground floor, or that's managed completely through your through your partner venues? Yeah, so we definitely we definitely have a rough idea of how we want it to look. Uh, even now, we've already reached out to 
people interstate um, and have gotten quite a few responses from people in Sydney and Queensland mainly uh, that want to be a part of it. As far as managing it, we, we haven't gotten into the specifics of who's going to coordinate, who's going to you know, deliver the offers, um, but it, I can imagine it's going to be the, the venues are going to have a, a big involvement in actually delivering the value that we're promising to the influencers. So I'm pretty confident that that will scale quite well, uh, especially if we're able to get, you know, bigger influencers over time. I think that it's something that will kind of take care of itself to an extent. How have you handled the shift from being focused on one project being slide at the beginning um, to now working on Nom Nom as well? Yeah, so the the shift, in my opinion, has gone really well. And that's mainly because of two things. So the the Nom Nom team, the development company that that built Slide, um, also built Nom Nom. And the founder of that development company is involved with Slide as well um, for equity. So between having the teams overlap and also with Nom Nom and Slide both being in the hospitality industry, it has been a pretty smooth transition. And Josh and, and my decision to go into Nom Nom was, was based around that and also the fact that um, the, the well, we're calling him our CTO now, um, who, who, who runs that company. He's, he's really good, really easy to work with. And definitely fits in with how we like to talk about issues, talk about, you know, opportunities. And, yeah, we just – it made a lot of sense to go into business with someone mm. like this. Um, obviously, Slide and Nom Nom, I guess, have some similarities in delivery um, in the sense that you would work with venue partners on both. But could you take people through, I guess, the differences in the, in the two products? Um, and then uh, as a second part of that question – from developing the first product and sort of fine-tuning the offering with Slide for the nightlife space, um, what, I guess, were the lessons that you've learned in early implementation of Slide that have affected how you're developing Nom Nom? Yeah, so, all right, so to give a quick overview, Slide is facilitating the transactions in the nightlife space. So people go on Slide, they see what's on, and they can make bookings from guest lists to birthdays, tickets, and bottle service packages. So customer goes on Slide, they make a booking, Slide receives a commission. Uh, whereas on the other hand, Nom Nom is the, the core product of Nom Nom is in-venue uh, menu and, and table ordering. So the customer pulls out their phone, they access their, the, the venue's menu on their phone, and they can order and pay directly from the table without talking to the waiter, without going up to the counter to pay. So that's kind of how the products work. The, the second part of your question around lessons, I'd say the biggest lesson is that you need to be getting the feedback whilst you're developing and rolling out the product. It's something that saves a lot of time money, headaches, if you can just talk to the right people while you're actually building it, 
you're going to get a better product sooner, cheaper, and it's all going to work out a lot better. So that's something that Josh and I had an involvement in with NomNom. However, the, the, um, the head of the development company, he did a lot of that as well. Um, and that's definitely helped NomNom to launch an MVP that everyone in the market will, will use if, if they want to. How does, um, I guess, as far as signing partners to the slide and the, and the NomNom applications, that's a very face-to-face kind of thing. And that was something you were speaking to around your, your day in the office. So I guess part and parcel is going out and meeting with, with venue owners or, or restaurant, restaurant operators um, and basically pitching the product, hopefully signing the, signing the business and then onboarding them. Is that the case? Yes, that's it. Most of our, most of that has happened. Um, my involvement in that has been slide based mainly, and that whole process has been has been pretty good. Um, if I'm being honest, we 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 haven't had a meeting where we've shown up and they've gone, no, we don't want to use this. The biggest challenge has been in the onboarding, and that's something that this down period now where obviously everything's closed um, due to the virus and, and all of that, um, it's allowed us to refine that onboarding process to take away a lot of those barriers, a lot of the things that that ultimately led to some venues just going quiet and not really doing anything. Um, but yeah, to, to sum it up, the, the sales is pretty straightforward because of the fact that with the slide product, we're not we're not charging up front. We're, we're only eating what we kill, essentially. We're charging commission on sales and therefore it's, it's a no-brainer for venues to work with us. But the onboarding is where mm. we have to improve. I so, think it's very interesting. Yeah. You obviously speak about, you know, we're currently recording in the middle of um, COVID-19 lockdown in Australia and generally, um, despite a few states in the US, um, globally. Um, and I guess you spoke... <laughs> about using this time um, to continue working, continue improving the product. As with any startups, there are long days and nights at the office. How have you handled the toll of running a business um, and what that sort of takes away from the other areas of your life? Yeah, so I'd say that the first part of that question, the long days and nights at the office, I've always found when we're when we're actually in the moment doing those long days and nights, it's not as difficult as you might think. Purely because there's there's so much passion and drive, we're we're so present in what we're doing, and we're in such a flow state most of the time that they don't actually feel like long days and nights. Um, but the second part of your question there is is pretty accurate. It does take its toll, um, and the first things that pop into my mind is the, the traveling side of being young and um, being at uni and, and wanting to travel with your mates. And then the other side is obviously you just, you can't spend as much on everything because you have to pour money into the business at the start. Otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. I think they're both very good points. You touched on something as well in the middle there that I just wanted to, to pick you up on. You mentioned flow state. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about routines and stuff a little bit later, but is there anything uh, you do or you and Josh do together um, to get yourself into a flow state? 
Well, I'm just trying to think in particular. I mean, it always starts off with being immersed in whatever whatever we're working on or, or whatever topic that we're discussing. Um, I think ultimately you're not going to get into a flow state if you and your mind have made it up that this is not an enjoyable task. Like your brain is not going to let you enter that state from what I've found. So I guess from a practical sense, it's really just getting started. And then once you've gotten started on the task, trying to find enjoyment in what you're doing. And we found that very often that leads to just long sessions of productivity days fly by and yeah. Correct. Because the flow state is, well, can be difficult for quite a lot of people to get to, but if I can link it back to something we discussed earlier, I think passion is a key ingredient to anyone achieving a flow state. And when you are passionate and enjoying what you're doing and, and really, I guess also like gratitude and being happy to be there. um, I think it allows you to, to get to that level within your, with you in your brain. And then obviously things just start, I don't know, <laughs> like, I guess everyone's probably been in a flow state, whether they've deliberately put themselves there or accidentally got there. It's a great place to be in when you're working on something. Um, I guess one of the hardest things is getting there consistently for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Just, just to add that, add to that there. I think the other key ingredient is, is that the task or whatever you're doing is somewhat challenging I remember seeing, well, actually, I don't know if you've read the book called, called Flow, and I know we'll probably touch on some of that later, but when a task is essentially at your skill level um, and it's, it's challenging you, but you have the capability to, to execute on it and get through it, uh, that's, from what I've heard, is the most likely, the highest chance that you're actually going to enter that state. So that that's interesting. I, I haven't read the well. literature, um, but it does, I guess it rings true for me in a few things that I've done when something can be too difficult. Um, it becomes hard work, um, which is equally enjoying in, in different, you know, in a different way. Um, but obviously sometimes when you just want to have, yeah. I guess, quote unquote, a really productive day um, doing things that you're very good at doing, um, but are still, you know, relatively difficult, I guess, Josh and I spoke about um, making sure that you work through those three key things in the day. Um, and I think, you know, most people, if they do three things that they can actually do and actually exec- execute on, they finish the day feeling a lot more productive than if they do three things that they absolutely struggled through um, and they sort of get to the end of the day and they just can't wait to go home. So, uh, you know, I'll have to read, I'll have to read the book, yeah. but um, you know, I think that sounds very, very, very reasonable to me and sort of reflects my lived experience, definitely. Um, where are we? Josh talked a lot about self-awareness. Um, what were some of the chinks in your armour you've picked up during this process um, and have had to work on for yourself? Yeah, so I guess the answer kind of lies in, in the question to an extent. The, the, the biggest thing for me is, is self-development. Uh, as a whole, you ultimately have to become the person first before you can actually get what you're trying to get. And the type of self-development that I'm getting at is is not that, I'm going to call it that cute kind of self-development that's everywhere, you know, on Instagram and that people throw around quotes and shit. I'm talking about the kind that actually produces results that that gives you an edge in whatever you're trying to do. 
So being really intentional and, and almost tactical about your self-development is something that I don't think I can measure the, the impact that it's had. I mean, if I didn't do it, there'd be no business I'd be, you know, doing. Just to give I'd people a little bit of insight so, into the difference between, I think I know what you mean by, um, by the Instagram quote, um, development versus real, um, you know, real self-work. What were, I guess, a couple of the, you know, one or two of the practical, um, examples of things that you've actually had to sit down and work on and strategize through with your development personally? Yeah. So, I mean, with starting a startup or, or any business or skill that you're trying to learn, it's always a good idea to find mentors, find people that can help you either in person or through books and courses and, and videos. Um, for me, a couple of the key skills have been learning Facebook advertising, learning how to build websites. Um, I've learned, I've dabbled in video editing. I've dabbled in, in yeah, making making different promos and potential ads for Slide. And another topic has been going deep into copywriting and learning how to how to write sales pages essentially and and emails and things like that. These are some of the key skills that I've at one point or another, I've either watched certain people on YouTube of certain, certain podcasts, or I've actually gone out and invested in, in courses to learn these. What excites you about coming to work at slide every day? It's something I touched on earlier that, that nature of, of building and creating like when we when we come to the office every day and we start working, we there's that sense that what we're doing has a very high chance of impacting an entire industry for the foreseeable future, and there's something pretty powerful in that. That that when you when you remind yourself of that, it's kind of hard to just be passive and go about your day, um, and. From there, it forces you to keep improving and it forces you to keep developing new skills. And to add on that more, it's also in line with both mine and Josh's, what, what we think are our purposes, um, where we want to go, long-term wealth and opening up new opportunities down the line. So in short, it really just ties together everything. And when you have all of that together... Like in my opinion, I can't not. Yeah, be I guess high purpose in, what I'm doing. in some senses is a good way to sort of phrase what you were talking about. You, you're coming to you coming to work with a mission and something you want to achieve, um, and it you know pushes you forward and pushes you to be there every day. On a yep, more personal exactly. note, um, do you wake up in the morning and work through a morning routine or, or ritual? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm pretty big on morning routines purely because I've seen the results when you don't have one and then when you do have one. Um, it's mine's, I mean, I have a lot of things that I would like to do every day. I don't always do all of them every day, um, but there are some definite. Mm, take me through your, morning routine. I guess your ideal day. Um, you know, some days we're a bit pushed for time and some days we sort of have to drop a few things out. But what does your ideal morning look like? 
Yeah, so the ideal morning would would be wake up. Um, I normally start with some sort of meditation. Most days it's five minutes or so, um, no music or, or earphones on, just purely breathing um, and focusing on that. And then I'll also, something I've added more recently is, I don't know if you've heard of Wim Hof, but his breathing technique I've been incorporating in and basically that has a range of benefits um, to do with focus and, and feeling more awake and I think it's just a really good way to start the day then I'll go into some sort of journaling um, this changes and, and fluctuates a bit but it's around gratitude and, and principles and visualization of, of where I want to go things like framing goals in terms of already achieving them what I want the day to look like, the week, the week to look like, month to look like, things like that. Uh, and then I'll try and get some sort of exercise in. Most days it's body weight workouts um, or some sort of weighted calisthenics type thing. Um, and after that, I mean, most days I'm having a cold shower as well to kind of cap it off. So there's a heap of stuff in there and like you touched on, I don't get to all of it every day, but these are the type of things that when you stack them on top of each other every day, you just go into, you go into the day with so much momentum and it's, it, it puts you in a really, it's very interesting. You touched on, um, you know, a couple of points. One, one of the things that I'm seeing across, you know, recording a lot of episodes now, um, is consistency in some of these routines. Um, Wim Hof is probably at the more extreme end, um, I guess the more extreme end for some people, um, but it's something that I've, I have ice bath about three times a week. Um, and I probably, I, I probably use the, the breath element of, of Wim maybe four times a week. I do breath work every day, but sometimes I change it up just for variety. So I'm fully across the benefits there. It's very interesting. Yep. Um, I, I recently, um, finished recording an episode that we'll have up in a couple of weeks with, with, um, a guy out of LA, Max, Max Gomez. And we talked about the benefits of, of cold showers on that episode. Um, you obviously would use the, the cold showers off the back of looking into women and everything like that. Once you jump out of cold water immersion, how do you feel? What do you think the benefits are there? Oh, I mean, there's, there's a whole heap of benefits with it. I mean, <clears throat> the first one is, doing something every day that's hard right from the get-go. I know a lot of people would classify getting out of bed early as something that's hard, but in my opinion, there's, there's nothing like overcoming a cold shower first thing in the morning or, or after a hard workout. Um, it makes the progressive tasks that you have in your morning um, just that, that bit easier, in my opinion. Um, and then obviously there's there's other immune system benefits and things like yeah, that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I've, I've noticed definitely noticed well. the benefits of of cold water immersion and and the breathing exercises. Um, the wind breathing exercises I think also have uh, immunity benefits as well. Um, and I've definitely noticed those. I haven't been sick for been sick for months since you know since starting, which has been really good. Um, give me three practical points yep. that you would recommend. Um, to someone listening, to implement in, into their life to be 1% better? Some of your habits, routines, workout tips, ETC. 
Yeah, okay. So I think these are these are kind of, you know, even more applicable now due to the fact that everyone is at home. Uh, and the first one would be it's a really good opportunity to kind of cut out bad habits and replace them with better ones and really redirect kind of that energy that you'd put into bad habits in the past. Um, actually use that and, and develop a new habit um, that, that can benefit you ultimately. The second one is I'd say that everyone should be developing some sort of skill that you can monetize or sell or, or, you know, it could open up a, a career for you in something else. But I think that, you know, the way things are going now, it's really transitioning more away from that job based economy to more of a skill economy. Um, and the last thing I'd touch on is just take this time to reflect and really think about where you want to go, you know, as we sort of come out of this, this lockdown and quarantine period. Like I think you touched on some really for all um, interesting things and just to dig a little bit deeper, um, give me, you know, one or two habits or as many you can think of that sort of bad habits and what you replace them with as you've worked through your, through your journey. Yeah. So, I mean, an obvious one is you can't go out and drink as much as you, as much as you could before. Um, and the obvious one there is, is exercise and being able to take advantage of this extra time that you have this extra energy where, you know, you're not waking up in the morning hungover and feeling like crap. You can actually wake up early and get a workout in, in whatever, whatever medium you, you, you want to choose. But uh, that's a prime example of how you can, yeah, um, I think, it's, I think it's a really good point, particularly with some of the <clears throat> relatively alarming statistics around alcohol consumption, particularly in Australia during um, during coronavirus. But um, I think we're equally worried about how many people are outside <laughs> yeah. exercising and, um, you know, not socially distancing, which is, you know, a, a very, it's very interesting. I think we're seeing, you know, one of one of two extremes, people are either using the time to, to build a good habit with exercise more than what they would, but then they obviously seem to be coming home and drinking a little bit more than what they would to just just balance things out. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm yeah. acutely aware of the benefits of, of not drinking alcohol. Um, how do you find the obviously working the nightlife space and spending a lot of time um, in venues? Um, do you have you know sort of a rule or a structure that you work with to avoid copious consumption of alcohol? Yeah, look, that's a very valid question. Um, and it's something that honestly, I'm still figuring out myself. Um, there is definitely a rough structure, some rough rules you have to set out. Because at the end of the day, if you're, if you're out three nights a week, which we are some weeks, you just can't perform at, at any kind of level that you need to if you're going out all three of those nights and just getting smashed. So, I mean... An easy way around it is sometimes we go out and we drive um, and we change that up between Josh and myself and whoever's coming with us. And, yeah, I mean, some nights get in the venue, maybe one or two drinks socially, um, but then that's it. I mean, the it, it is hard purely because your willpower only lasts. It, it's It's a limited resource every day. 
if you if you put yourself in in those environments your willpower is only going to do so much before you just cave and and say you know what i'm going to have a couple of drinks tonight and then that turns into whatever it turns into you know you smash the next morning um but yeah it's something that we're still figuring out and i'm still figuring it out personally but what's the best book that you've read currently jordan So I'm doing a lot of reading in this time. I, I thought it was a good opportunity to reread three books that, I, that I've read before, um, but they're very effective in, in rewiring your mindset. Um, basically, those three books are Millionaire Fastlane by MJ DeMarco, uh, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Eker, and The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. And these three books, in my opinion, they all tie into each other. Um, the authors are all saying similar things, but in different ways. And they ultimately just, the combination really rewires your brain to think like a rich person, to think like a successful person. And I, yeah, it's very I interesting to talk about, anyway. I guess, rewiring brains and, and neuroplasticity. Um, I use affirmations as part of my, my morning routine. I think um, Josh and I spoke about that as well. I think Josh uses them. Um, and again, one, one of the benefits of affirmations is a, around um, basically manifesting what you, you know, who you want to be um, into your brain and changing the way that your brain thinks and, and I guess really approaches situations into the person that you would, would like to be or, or want to be, um, you know, in a business sense, it might be around making, you know, bigger, bigger and more bold and decisive decisions. Um, and that's actually something you can just trick your brain into thinking that it knows how to do, um, which obviously most of us, I think it's probably fair to say um, with all of the knowledge that we have available and, you know, Jordan obviously just covered off on three, three books that I think I've heard of the Schwartz book. I definitely haven't heard of the other two books and I haven't read them. Um, they're three things for me to, to add to the collection and, and to read through, but there's no shortage of knowledge. We're definitely not suffering as a society, um, a, a gap in knowledge. I think what we're really, um, what we're really working with for a lot of people is that integrity gap. It's the gap between knowledge and, and knowledge and action. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you've used this time to go back to three books you've already read um, to just keep working and on remapping, you know, those, those neurons and making sure they fire in the right, right way to, to create those, I guess, those thought patterns um, and those, those mental structures that allow you to pr- approach life in a bigger and better way. Yeah. And the, on that as well, I mean, these, these are the three books that I think are, are the best for doing that. There's obviously a heap more, um, but I think it's important because of the fact that you are on a day-to-day basis dealing with a lot of conventional thinking and conventional wisdom um, that if you're not careful, you kind of slip back into old thought patterns and, and sort of mainstream opinions and things like that. So I think it's important to just to just rewire sometimes and listen to the people that are where you I want think to that's, be in um, whatever area of life. You know, I heard someone talking about mentors. Um, 
I think yesterday I was listening to a podcast about it. Um, and she was basically saying it's good to have a mentor that's, you know, about two years ahead of you. Um, and then another mentor that is about five years ahead of you or, you know, even greater period, um, because they're the kind of people that by seeing their actions and, and watching what they're doing, they actually pull you forward. Um, or as I guess one of the things that we're very, very good at, um, as, as humans, as creatures of comfort, um, is surrounding ourselves with people that I guess are just on our level. Um, or, you know, in some cases, I think people even surround themselves with people that are, you know, less than them so they can feel feel good or, you know, really feel like they're doing something when actually if you really want to succeed um, and, and sort of flip the script, it's about putting, you know, putting people around you that are actually doing much, much better than you or are a little bit further along in the journey um, and that just allows you to level up thinking. Um, that being said, I, I was listening to a very interesting podcast. Um, it was the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. Um, and he was speaking about a guy um, that had founded, I think he had a business with 165 um, locations across the world, you know, very, very successful. Um, and he came to Jordan, who's a clinical psychologist by trade, um, and basically sat down. He said, oh, look, I'm a complete failure, blah, blah, blah. I've done nothing. You know, I've done nothing in my life. And Jordan said to him, oh, well, why do you, you know, you've started, you've got 165 global you know, global locations, you're killing it. Why do you think you're doing so badly? And he said, well, my roommate's done so much more. And Jordan said, well, who's your roommate? And he said, oh, my roommate was Elon Musk. <laughs> now, there's a point at which having mentors too far ahead of you um, or people that you surround yourself with that are, you know, I guess extraordinary at what they do, um, that it becomes that it becomes harmful. But barring those extreme examples, I think it's a really, really good thing to surround yourself by with people that are, you know, that are a couple of levels above you or a couple of years ahead of you um, because it stops you from slipping back into that, into that old mindset, um, into that place of complacency. And um, I guess in some senses, almost normality. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with, with everything you said there. There's, there's a lot of interesting schools of thought here because on one hand, people that are, let's say, 10, 20 years ahead of you looking at like Elon Musk and that example you just gave, it's, it can really inspire you and, and motivate you. Um, but then it gets to a point where, let's say, let's, let's say someone like Mark Cuban, for example, you know, it's been so long since he has actually been in the trenches and has built, you know, his, his first company, um, to where he is now and ultimately he's going to have a lot of great advice but personally I would much rather be mentored directly by someone who has done what I'm trying to do in a more recent time frame if I'm looking at you know slide and nom nom and and all the businesses I want to build in the future right now I, I want to get mentored by a tech CEO that mm. has a 10 million a year business as an example um because he's going to be able to give me those those tips and tricks and and that that recent experience um, doing what I'm actually trying to do. And there's lots of examples that 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 I can think of in my head, kind of archetypes of different people that I would want to be mentored by. And um, yeah, I'm I think it's a really you know one out. of the things that I hear the most from from people. Um, 
and I guess even even personally, um, I never really had idols as a kid. Like I, I really, I very irregularly looked up to people, maybe because of a ridiculous ego complex. I don't know, but I I always looked at I always looked at certain situations, <laughs> and I was always approach it with like a mindset. I was like, oh, if I wanted to do that, like I could definitely do that, um, which is huge positive when it comes to business because means that there's a lot of things I have, um, you know, like we're in the middle of a corona, coronavirus crisis and I'm trying to start more businesses than I ever have um, before. So, um, you know, some people would look at that and go, you're crazy, but I'm just like, yeah. well, I'm sure there's one other example. Well, I just look at the GFC and I go, look at how many businesses came out of the GFC. If these people have done it, then so can I. Um, what the, the, the difficult issue there is when you never really look up to someone um, throughout the process, it can be difficult to find mentors. Now, I've now learned along the way that there is people that can really, really help me with particular things that I'm not good at. Um, but I've also become an expert at asking for help. Um, and it's probably one of the most underrated, um, I guess, underrated talents. And you talk about seeking out mentors. People will, you know, people will say to me, oh, you know, how do you know such and such or whatever? And I'll say, oh, but, you know, that they mentored me in, this this and that and i'm like oh that's really cool like how did you get them to do that I'm like, i asked them like and that was you know there's i guess like i also understand how to, like how to romance these people and you have to make their time feel worth it whether it's paying for mentoring or you know paying for the lunch or paying for the dinner or whatever it is um another good way to i guess reward a mentor is actually listen to the advice and execute on the advice is a really good one um but I think just actually actively seeking people out and then actively asking them, you know, for advice. (laughs) There's so much gold in that tip, Jordan. Like the fact that you're still actively seeking out these people and will continue to. And I'm sure when you get to $10 million, you're going to be looking for someone that's doing $50 million and then you're going to be seeking them out and and just keep going. Um, I think there's just so much gold there. Exactly, man. And and that's that's a very interesting point. The 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 point you made about you know getting to ten million and then wanting to level up and, and look for that next level of mentor, if you will, it's it's something that I know is inherent in my nature that that desire to get to the next level and to keep improving. And I think it's pretty important for anyone to kind of cultivate that ability in business um, because ultimately you're you're going to be happy and engaged in what you're doing when you're actually growing and getting better and improving. So what I'm trying to say is it's not, it's not an ego thing where you're like, Oh, I need to hit this number to get to that milestone and then I'll feel better about myself. It's just, it's part of the joy. It's, in what um, you're, doing, you're leveling up. And I guess there's, there's two sides to it. If you're someone that's purely driven by the numbers, um, you're going to run into an issue somewhere um, because at some point the numbers can't get any bigger. Um, yep. and, and also the reward in making the numbers bigger, like Amazon being the biggest company in the world currently, um, I reckon in, in some, in some levels, um, when Jeff Bezos was number two, there was a lot more motivation to get up to number one, staying at number one is a lot, lot harder as far as a motivation kind of thing, because you're chasing it. You're really chasing imaginary number. No one's had a business that big ever. Um, so you're chasing, you're not chasing anything except yourself. And that's really hard to motivate for. Um, but I think what you're speaking about is actually, it's about loving the process, not the results. 
Um, and, and that's really, the, exactly. in my opinion, yep. that's the enjoyment. The enjoyment for me is people telling me to, you know, when I'm calling, I'm trying to sell them something, people telling me to piss off. Um, that's the enjoyment. It's the rejection. It's also the successes, but it's, you know, it's the whole package and it's the whole piece coming together um, that really keeps you motivated and keeps you driving, which I guess really links back to what we, what we opened up with, which is passion. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, um, I think you really need to, this, this period's a great one um, to sit down and actually be like, you know, am I really passionate about the job I'm working in? Am I really passionate about the industry? Am I really making a difference? Is that something I want? Um, I think these are good questions, particularly now to be asking, because if you're not passionate, um, I can tell you the, the motivation runs out eventually at some point and then it gets real, real hard. Yeah, exactly. And it, it doesn't just get harder from from one sense. It gets harder from all aspects. I mean, you you get married, you have kids, you have more overheads, more responsibilities. And ultimately, the more you leave it, the more you've got to overcome and the harder it's going to be. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely very important for people to use this time to reflect on their current situation like I, like I touched on earlier. What is um, one thing you that you're curious about currently? Well, I'd say outside of my main business ventures, right now I'm extremely curious about um, Facebook advertising and affiliate marketing. So this is, this is something I've been interested in for a while. Um, back when I was working in my engineering job, I was constantly thinking, I'm like, how can we replace this income? How can I get out of this situation? And when you're in that kind of a position, the motivation is pretty high to seek out online business models, other skills that you can, that you can replace your income with. And so I went on this journey after uni um, yep. where I started looking into, I started with drop shipping. Um, and, and doing Facebook advertising with, with that. It was all just random products from China, um, no brand, purely just let's move the product. Um, but then it went into more of the affiliate marketing space and that is heavily focused on how you can leverage paid ads and paid traffic. So it's something that for me, I'm very... I'm very curious about. I'm also passionate and driven to make it work, both both from a financial perspective, but also because the skill set directly overlaps into marketing and selling. I think it's it's something that I've, I've in slide in particular. I own a digital business now, so um, I'm you know definitely across the um, I'm across the Facebook ad space um, in in some senses. But I think one of the other things that Really, which was around building a skill set um, that can make you money, which I guess is really a side hustle um, in the traditional sense. I think what you're talking about with, um, you know, the, the practical application, one of the things I guess that really interests me to really speak about it specifically um, is ROI on ad spend on Facebook. Um, so I have an advertising package that um, we market to, um, that we market to property developers that sits at about $30,000. Um, it encompasses a, a full digital suite of products um, from, you know, the Google suite of um, AdWords, 
Google retargeting, um, banners, um, and then there's a social element in there as well. Um, what really interests me is um, the audiences on when you, if anyone's not run um, a Facebook ad before an Instagram ad, um, you can go on and you can actually custom set your own, your own audience. Um, and for me, I find it very interesting how someone could take a product, you know, that they've bought or manufactured themselves um, and leverage a really, really small marketing budget um, to create huge ROI. Um, I guess that, that's something that really interests me about Facebook ads because there's some amazing stories out there of people spending, you know, two grand on Facebook ads and making, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and I guess in a marketing and advertising business, we're committing clients to 30000 40000 $50,000 ad spends. Um, being able to achieve ridiculous ROIs is important to our business model. But, it, you know, in, in some senses... Um, there's also that personal gain in knowing that any skill that you developed, uh, like I'm becoming increasingly better at web design, which is one of the things that you touched on before, um, as I'm learning more about that, if I could run a good Facebook ad campaign with a couple of grand, there's no reason why I couldn't, you know, fill myself up with $150,000, $200,000 a year worth of, of web design work as a freelancer. Um, that really interests me about Facebook ads particularly in the future of the economy um, post this, you know, post this crisis, people losing their jobs, who can leverage the platforms we have now to create alternate income streams to secure themselves for the next time we have a global crisis. Yeah, for sure. And something like Facebook advertising, it, it really falls under the banner of digital marketing and, and media buying, which is, is one of those, key you know you want to put a number on it in my opinion there's there's like five to ten real high income skills that you can kind of take and apply to any industry and these are these are really the recession proof skills if you want to call them those the ones that are based around either marketing or sales or are just an integral part to a specific industry Um, the skills that are indispensable and that that there's always going to be a demand for. And so, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, if you want to use something like Facebook ads, for example, and apply it to freelance work, if you learn how to effectively roll that ROI over, um, you get the cash flow sorted out, you get your targeting and your messaging all sorted out. <clears throat> um, there's no reason why you can't have, an endless stream of leads um, for your work. And, if you could and step build a brand into my shoes and ask yourself a question, what would it be? Basically, just let you talk about. Yeah, what you'd interesting like to talk question. About, um, <laughs> yeah, no, nah, it's. I think, I think a good question to ask would be. How to make that transition? Well, let me ask you. How would you make that transition? If you could have your time again, is probably a better way of phrasing it because you probably sort of worked it out by a bit of trial and error the first time. But if you could have your time again and advise someone else, how would you handle the transition from you know full time employment um, into operating a business? Yeah. So looking at it from the perspective of you're someone that knows you want something else or want something more. You have a rough idea of 
what you want to pursue, but you're not in it yet as much as you want. Um, I'd say that people like that feeling that way. There's this real, there's this traditional beginner mindset that it's all about the strategy or it's all about the business model or the, or the tactic that I can get from someone that's got results or that I think has results. Um, And I think it, it really goes much deeper than that. And you have to, it's like what I touched on at the start. I mean, you really have to change how you're looking at the world. And I know that sounds a bit extreme, but you really have to change your mindset on what work is, what um, earning an income is and how you're compensated for that. You have to, you have to really, you can't chase things like certainty and comfort you need to take risks. You need to be able to evaluate feedback on a deeper level. Um, and ultimately, I think that you can't, you can't be a successful entrepreneur if you have that victim mindset and that mentality. Um, so I know I touched on a heap of things there, but these are all the things that I've learnt along my short journey um, of being in it. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Um, obviously entrepreneurship is, is something that's come quite um, easy to you. Um, I guess the way that I, um, the way that I see the world and the way that I see people that I interact with, um, particularly, you know, particularly with the digital business that I'm working on at the moment, um, you know, we have a couple of freelancers that, that work with us and I guess they're, you know, they would really be self-employed um, and they're, you know, they're small sole traders. They're making, more money than what they would if they worked at a design firm or the like of that. Um, but they're obviously not making as much money as, as running and operating their own design firm with their own employees. Um, but they obviously don't have the headaches and the overheads and all of the things that come with that as well. Um, if you, if you were speaking to someone and they were saying, look, you know, I've, I've got this full-time job. I do 38 hours a week. Um, I don't mind it. I really enjoy it. Um, you know, somewhere in between, I don't mind it and I really enjoy it. Um, but, you know, I, I'd really like to earn a little bit more money. Um, I think our culture's become very big on just like pushing people towards like starting a business or, um, you know, like quit your day job and like run out and start a business. But I don't think that that really fits everyone. I think there's entrepreneurs, there's people with entrepreneurial tendencies, um, and then there's people that are prospectively, you know, really good at being self-employed, but probably not that good at managing people or managing a business. Um, and then there's then there's employees. There's people that just love working for someone else and love being in a team and, and building that, um, you know, building a business from the inside, but not having to worry about, you know, not having to worry about P&L when they go home. Um, how, I guess, how would you tap into that feeling within yourself? You obviously were sitting there, um, at, I forget where you were working. Was it John Holland or somewhere like that? Fulton Hogan as, a, as an engineer and you, and you sort of tapped in. You're Fulton like, Hogan. I don't, I don't want to be yep. here. I want to go and do something else. And that led you into, into the drop shipping and then obviously eventually into slide. Um, how would you advise someone to work through that process and really, I guess, develop the self-awareness to know if they're an entrepreneur, if they've got entrepreneurial tendencies. And when I say that, they would be a really good um you know, maybe COO or CFO or something like that, but they're probably not, you know, they're not steering the ship day to day. Um, then you've got 
someone that maybe should be a freelancer or self-employed or like we were talking about before, could do web design on the internet and make 200, 300 grand a year just by themselves. Um, and then someone that, you know, should stay in a business and, you know, and work their way up the corporate ladder. How, how would you work through that? I guess self-awareness kind of question. Yeah, this, this is a topic that I'm pretty fascinated with myself. I mean, it's, the bottom line is that everyone is so different and you do have different skill sets and and tendencies. And yes, like you said, if you, if you do have entrepreneurial tendencies, I think most people know that deep down. Um, I think it becomes more of like, do I want to take the risk? It becomes more of an issue around comfort and certainty. Um, as opposed to just straight up knowing whether you have those tendencies or not. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that, yeah, there is that culture of quit your job, go start a business. Um, but I'm both just in my opinion and from firsthand experience, I know that you need to get to a certain level, um, both mentally with your mindset and also with your skills in order to successfully leave your job and start a business venture in whatever fashion that might be. Um, I also think that there's this, there's this common misconception that, oh, I'm going to finish uni and then I'm going to work for 10 years and then I'm going to start a business later on when I have some experience. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on this because I've never gotten to 30 years old and wanted to start a business. But in my opinion, I don't think you're just going to flip the switch at 30 or 40 and become, you know, that, that CEO that you've been dreaming of for the past 10 years if you weren't actually doing things every week, every day um, during your time as an employee uh, to actually get you towards that. Uh, so I think that's a pretty important thing for anyone in a job um, that that doesn't want to be there or doesn't want to be there long term. Um, there's nothing wrong with a job if you like what you're doing, if you're passionate about what you're doing and it's in line with where you want to go. Um, but I think the big thing is if it's not in line where you want to go, you better be taking some some steps. You better be taking some I think it's a very interesting perspective. Change um, thank you. If I could ask five of your close friends, what would they say is Jordan's superpower? Yeah, so I'd say it'd it'd be my ability to be able to get good at things quickly, uh, be able to learn quickly, and especially if, I become obsessed with that topic or, or that, let's say that sport or that, that skill set or that task or whatever it is that I'm doing. I think it's, it's, I view it as a strong talent of mine that I can get into things pretty quickly. And, and if I'm passionate about it, I can get pretty good at it. And that gives me confidence to try new things and, and ultimately to, take new things further, new projects, um, new hobbies, anything really. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that'd be 
probably the, the how, first thing that how do you cultivate that minds. like i guess adaptability but, yeah, is probably sure. a good you know obviously there's a baseline intelligence you know to the whole thing as well but you know being adaptable i guess is probably the the definition of of the skill um for someone looking to be a little bit more adaptable like what are some of the things are, are you obsessive over something like once you get into it like you'll just go out and you'll practice the skill a million times until you get it right or is there you know, how does that process work for and how have you curated that? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a combination of of curiosity, but also just being relentless with, with whatever you're trying to do. I think when you combine that curiosity, you find you find the best ways to do things a lot sooner in that journey. Um, and ultimately when you relentlessly practice and and obsess about it and it kind of dominates your thinking um that's something that i think whenever anyone can tap into that they can produce a pretty good result the challenge really is is getting to that position um like i'm I'm sure you can understand there's there's lots of things where people want to do them they think it'd be good they, they dream about it. it. It's it's an idealistic world. They they want that end result, um, but they end up just never getting there. And in my opinion, that comes down to really you haven't lined up, you haven't lined up the steps and put the things in place to ultimately give your brain the dopamine that you need to get there. Like if it's too painful for you to take the day to day steps to get good at something. Your brain's just going to be against you every step of the way. That's a really, really interesting point, Um, particularly about, I guess, the neurochemistry. Um, How how often do you think about things like dopamine and serotonin and um, and how they play out in, I guess, driving you forward on a day to day level? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of my a lot of my education on this topic like i'm not reading a lot of scientific literature or anything but there's this really good guy on on youtube his name's alex becker um and basically he he lays it out in in a really easy to understand way uh and he talks a lot about the fact that your brain is is kind of binary it's it's this animalistic nature where you're either going towards pleasure or you're going towards pain and your brain is going to choose well, what's the most effective way for me to get the dopamine here? You know, how can I get that pleasure? And if sitting on the couch and having a beer is the fastest way to the dopamine, well, you're not going to go and uh, spend five hours learning Facebook ads. You're going to go and sit yeah. on the couch. So I guess what you're saying and is having that knowledge of, of how your dopamine reward up. system um, is happening in the brain. Like when you're having that, I guess, when you're having that chemical urge to sit down and do nothing, you know that it's your brain almost trying to trick you and that then drives you to executing on something, you know, something different. Is that sort of how you approach it? Yeah, that's it. And it, it's a combination of, of practice and, and self-awareness, but then it's also setting up the conditions and, and the environment to actually make that a lot easier. I mean, like I touched on earlier, your willpower is finite and by the end of the day where a lot of people slip up with their routines or their, or their goals or what they wanted to get done for the day, 
um, you're slipping up towards the end where your willpower is drained either because you've done a heap of stuff or you've, you know, you've had a bad day at work with your boss or whatever it is. Um, just understanding how your brain works is important because you I think it's very, very interesting. Brain just give me quickly before we, um, before we wrap up, what would be your, um, what would be your two points on, on if someone wants to set up their environment to, to succeed and to work through a few of these things and maybe get away from some of those bad habits or those, those easy dopamine hits, um, what are a couple of things you've done with, with your environment, whether it's at home or in the office that, that keeps you on track? Yeah, I guess the the most obvious one is, and I'm sure most people have heard it before, but you need to be around the right people. Um, I think this is probably the biggest one. If you have people around you that just are not on your wavelength at all, that constantly talk shit about what you're doing or they themselves have a lot of the, the habits that you're trying to get away from. If you're still in the proximity of these kinds of people, you're, you're not going to get to where you want to go. Um, so the people you're around is, is a big one. Um, and then, I mean, when you touch on habits and, and that sort of thing, I mean, a perfect example is just if you're trying to eat don't healthier, have it in the cupboard, it doesn't get eaten. The unhealthy shit when you're yeah. at the grocery store. Like that. I that's think that's it. a really that's good, I, like I was I thinking about, um, about I was thinking about gaming consoles um, as well. Like I reckon there'd, there'd be heaps of young guys that just get drawn into particularly with online gaming now. Um, and and I'm, I should preface this. You can make a lot of money playing esports, but not being, you know, if you're, if you're less than 500 in the world yes. um, and you're over 21, you've probably missed your shot. Um <laughs> Get the PlayStation out of the house. Um, get the Xbox out of the house um, because that actual yep. action will then set you up to have when you come home. Instead of going, oh great, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna unwind for thirty minutes because then the thirty minutes becomes an hour, the hour becomes four hours. Um, once it's gone, you actually come home and you read that book you've been meaning to read. Um, you cook. You have time to cook healthy, so then you don't go and buy fast food or simply by removing something from the environment, we can actually. Know, really influence the way that we think and we approach situations. Yeah, that's it's very interesting you mentioned gaming as well because probably about three years ago, that was a big thing for me. I used to be obsessed with, with FIFA. Um, just when you are obsessed with a video game, it really dominates your thinking. Your, your brain is, when you're, when you're not on it, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about how you're going to get better or how you're going to get that item or, you know, how you're going to move up the rankings. And I guess I kind of accidentally stumbled upon this, but by having such a heavy involvement in, in business and startups and, and getting wrapped up in that world, it, it kind of gave me a different outlet to redirect that energy into. And so like I said, I think I stumbled on that by, by accident. But if anyone is, is dominated by some sort of habit that, that they're obsessing about 24-7 and it is destructive, um, in my opinion, the only way around that is to, at the end mm, of the day... I think that's really... Um, that it's interesting. It's something that I, It's one of the reasons I, 
I like to say that, um, you know, the routine will set you free. Um, and by scheduling things into your day, if it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't get done, um, I generally believe. Um, so if you actually schedule your day and you actually hold yourself accountable to your schedules, um, it's something that I, my yeah. calendar all through this COVID period has been fully booked. Um, like I, if I have an hour, I'm blocking it. I block in my lunch hour. I block in my reading. I block it. Everything gets blocked. Um, because if I don't schedule it, I don't do it. Um, because it's so easy to just fall back into, you know, sitting on the couch or scrolling social media. Um, so I, I find that scheduling things really helps. And in that sense, I've actually created an environment. Um, you know, my, my relationship with time is such during the day um, that I don't, I don't schedule myself time to do something. I don't allow myself time to do something, which I think is another way that you can, I guess, impact your environment. Like if you're stuck in an environment and you can't leave or you can't change it immediately, um, adding something else in there, whether it's, um, you know, calling up a friend and saying, hey, we're going to work out at the gym every night at 7 p.m. And then that way, when you get home from work at 6 o'clock, right, it doesn't give you the time to, to get into video games. You have to have a quick shower, get changed, and then drive down to the gym, right? Then you do your hour workout, you come home. Now it's late, so you have to eat, right? And you're actually basically building yourself a time structure that actually at the end of it, whilst it might feel like a bit of a prison at the start, at the end of it, when you're seeing the results, you're like, I'm going to swear. Fuck, that was really, really good. Um, I was trying really hard not to swear there, but I think that's how important it is. Like you have that moment once you yeah. start getting yeah. the results when you're like, fuck, this is getting really, really good. And it's like almost this reverse psychology kind of thing where you created this almost imprisoning mm. structure and then that actually allows you to, to be free and to do the things that you want to do and achieve the things you want to achieve. Yeah, I mean, all of that there just just screams out setting up, setting yourself up to win. I mean, there's, I can't remember who said this, but I've heard it multiple times. The the concept that structure equals freedom. I mean, when you structure elements of your life, or or let's say you structure the first half of your day heavily, obviously, different people need different constraints and different levels of structure. But ultimately, if you, if you design your life and you set things up the right way, um, there's no reason why you can't have the things that you want, um, even when you thought before that, oh, there's no way I can do this, that, and that. It, it comes back to the book that I touched on before as well, The, the Secrets of the Millionaire Mind um, by T. Harv Eker. And one of the key concepts in that book is that you know, rich people think both and poor people think either or. Um, I mean, I've always, you hear that, that line about, oh, you can't have your cake and, and eat it too. But like, what the hell's the point of the cake if you can't eat it, you know? So uh, I think the, the both concept is something very interesting is, as well. Is um, that's very that we, I guess I we should touch on before we finish. I came across the concept of both through Gary Vaynerchuk's content Um and it was, you know, he would do a Q&A version of, of his show and people would call in and be like, oh, Gary, I'm thinking about starting a business, um, you know, with, um, that's a good example, thinking about starting a business doing dog walking or I'm thinking about starting a business doing dog grooming. Um, 
and he would just like instinctively just be like both. And it, this would like blow people's minds and he'd be like, well, they're sort of the same thing. Like you would take their dog for a walk and then once a week you would groom them and that would be additional fee. Like the answer's both. It's not one or the other. Um, and that's just started thinking. And like now when I get served problems and I look at it and I'm like, someone's trying to force me to do one thing or the other thing, I always try and find a way to make the answer both. Um, I think it's a good way to approach marketing and advertising as well. If someone's ever trying to force you to choose between like social and I don't know, social and Google AdWords, the answer is both. Um, but you know, you have to obviously look at your marketing spend and make sure we're allocating it the right way into the right things to get the best results. But ultimately you can't have one without the other. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's it's one of those things that becomes a just a mental thought process that you can get yourself in the habit of doing, of just looking for the opportunity to create that both outcome. And a lot of the times when when things seem, you know, overwhelming or, or the situation is just too much, um, if you actually just tune your brain in to think like that and think, well, how can I do this and that? Um, you'll be surprised. I completely agree with that. And I think your brain's probably wired in some ways to um, actually allow us to think that way and and to get the best outcome in both senses. But um, we've covered a lot of stuff today. I think um, you touched on some, some incredible things from passion, um, you know, self-awareness, and then obviously some of the more technical things as well. Um, You know, a nice little bit there on objection handling. It's been an absolute pleasure um, to talk to you today, Jordan. Um, Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for tuning in to Radio by Jack Roberts. We look forward to bringing you another episode next Monday at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Until then, you can always subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to keep up to date with radio, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at Radio by Jack Roberts. You can keep in touch with me on Instagram at Jack Roberts 8 or just type in Jack Roberts on LinkedIn.